Um, so last week we looked at a few different things. First of all, we saw, uh, I think I have a typo in your guide and I'm sorry about that, uh, but I should say Solomon's heart was turned from, from God to the gods of the nations. And, um, we saw last week that Solomon's story is really complicated and that he's got, or we saw the last couple of weeks that his story is really complicated, that he does seem to love on the one hand, the Lord, and yet on the other hand, also seems to love women and, and his heart was turned to foreign gods and they turned his heart. And the author helps us to see that connection that as warned in Deuteronomy that, uh, that the hearts of, or that the hearts of kings will be turned by women from other nations should they, uh, marry them. And so Solomon did and his heart was. And what ended up happening was the religion of the Jews began to be, well, very much, uh, polluted by pagan gods. And so naturally, uh, you know, Solomon is going to want to please his wife and, and or his wives in this case. And so he builds chapels for them so that they can worship. He ends up sacrificing there. The religion of the Jews ends up kind of being this melding pot of different religions coming together. And so you get this sort of syncretistic religion that has elements of a lot of different ones, which we're going to see even more so tonight as well. But this was a, an abomination, really, before the Lord, and the Lord had warned Solomon about these kinds of things, and he didn't heed that warning. And so what ends up happening, obviously, is that he falls into the trap. And so God specifically sought to, I mean, really uh, judge Israel because of the way the king had led the nation. And so God raised up adversaries against Solomon um, namely three. First was Hadad the Edomite, which the way that uh, I tend to think about a lot of these enemies that are raising up and, uh, and, and ag against Solomon in judgment is there, there's some, to some extent, undoing what David had built up. So David had built, you know, this sprawling kingdom that had invaded er territories of Edom and Ammon to the east and uh, Aram to the north and, you know, not quite to Egypt in the south, but, but really far south. And what you see in, in this sort of judgment is an undoing of everything that David had, had built. So the east goes first with Hadad, the Edomite, and then Razon in Damascus and the Aramean and all the Aramean states, which is uh, up north in Aram in Damascus, just north of the land of Israel. And then finally, right in the middle of Israel, one of Solomon's household uh, servants named Jeroboam is an industrious young man and was appointed. It was put in, in charge, if you will, of a lot of different things. And then eventually uh, Jeroboam is kind of wandering and doing some work up north. And he is approached by a prophet who tells him that he's going to take the 10 tribes of the north and they're going to form another kingdom. And the promise you have to remember, and you got to keep in mind that God promises, I'm not going to take all of the kingdoms away from, or all of the nations, all of the tribes away from Solomon. I'm going to leave him with 
well, he says one, but really he means two, Judah and Benjamin. Um, he's going to leave Judah and Benjamin with Solomon and the other tribes. He's going to give over to the Northern kingdom. And, um, and, and then we're, we're going to, we see that, and we saw last week, and, and I think it's, I've even included it in the passages this week that Levi is removed from the North and kicked out of the North and serves in the temple in the South. And so, but by, by and large, there's, Two tribes in the southern kingdom that make up the southern kingdom. That's Judah and Benjamin and all the other tribes outside of Levi, who's going to serve in the temple, but he doesn't have a land. He doesn't have any land or anything. Uh, All the rest of them are going to be in the northern kingdom. So from here on out, you'll hear Judah and that's the southern kingdom. And then you'll hear Israel. That's the northern kingdom. So Judah and Israel, those are two different groups. The reason that uh, this is sort of maybe a uh, this is free. Um, the the reason we call them Jews is because that is what what typically uh, what came from the uh, the the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, the only legitimate kingdom in the nation, and they were the Jews. And uh, then you have Israel in the north, and so. Um, and so that kind of just underscores their legitimacy. So even though Solomon uh, is judged, God does not go back on the promise that he made to David. And that, that's going to be really important, obviously, for Jesus. That's going to be really important for a lot of things coming forward, but uh, for the, the lineage of kings and all kinds of things. But that, that's, uh, just keep that in mind. Judah and Benjamin in the south, the rest of the tribes in the north, with Levi serving in the temple. Um, for some reason, not wanted to advance. There we go. Um, now, the period that we're moving into, this sort of era that we're in, is roughly 200 years, just a little bit more than 200 years. And uh, it's going to span the time periods from 931 BC all the way until 722 BC. 931 BC, which is the death of Solomon and the takeover of Rehoboam, his son. And then all the way to 722 BC, which is going to be the invasion of Samaria by the Assyrian kingdom. So we see that Assyria is going to march into the northern kingdom and is going to take off the northern kingdom of Israel off into slavery and going to leave the Judah and Benjamin as the only kingdom in the south. And... um, that fall happens in about 722. So that's that's kind of a section that we're in in first and second in the rest of first and second kings is sort of going through that time period. And it's going to go actually, we're going to extend beyond that all the way to where the southern kingdom gets taken out as well. Now, this period of time, 931 to 722, we're going to see Assyria rise to prominence. They're going to be become a really dominant force in geopolitical conversation, and, and they're going to be the kind of the military might. It's going to rise up in this time period so that they can uh, judge the northern kingdom. And then it's going to be Babylon that comes into the southern kingdom shortly after that. Now, I want to put this up here uh, mainly because there's going to be a test on this uh, after Christmas. You're going to have to fill all this in. Uh, I'm just kidding. I have provided this in the back of your packet, and I, I, I suppose I'm just going to leave it there. Um, so from here on out, you can choose to print it if you want to, or you can choose to not print it if you want to. I thought it might be helpful for you. This, this comes from Eugene Merrill, uh, who is a professor at Dallas Theological. Um, he wrote a, 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 history of the Old Testament called Kingdom of Priests, 
and you wrote another one called the history. Yeah. Shannon's got it. Uh, Sarah, I've recommended it to several people. It's very good. It's very good, you know, kind of thorough going through the, the, um, the history of Israel. It's, it's really pretty handy. Uh, and I use quite a bit of his material for Wednesday night. So, um, I, I've included his, his, uh, his sort of, uh, kingly genealogy here for both Israel and Judah. Now I want to be, I want you to be careful when we look at years, um, you know, we've got Gregorian calendar years here uh, next to these next to these kings. And we didn't start using the Gregorian calendar until like the 1500s. And, and before that, the Julian calendar. So, you know, that didn't come around till 43, I think, BC. So, yeah, you know, the, the years are approximations as best we can tell when we go back and we kind of do the math and that kind of thing. But sometimes the math can get a little fuzzy when we're looking at the years of Kings that they took the throne and then it gets really confusing when we're trying to keep track of two different Kings and when they're on the thrones and when they overlap. And so what we do, what happens is we'll get a lot of like in the fourth year of this King and in the third year of that King. And, and so we end up having to do a lot of math and sometimes we're trying to reconcile dates and, and things like that. And so these are close approximations and Merrill does a really good job of laying a lot of that stuff out and explaining why and we're not going to go into too much of that through this study, but I just wanted to lay this out here. But, you know, keep the years in kind of an open hand. They're going to be close. They're going to be something around there. Uh, they should be about right. But that's kind of the pattern. And so I think that's a handy little chart for you just to, to kind of keep at your at your disposal. And I've included it in your handout. Now, what, what we're looking at today is this really this top line here, Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And the relationship between the two, and we're going to be here for probably a few a, a, a few Wednesday nights, but um, Jeroboam and Rehoboam before we move on to the next set of kings. But um, the relationship between these two and uh, and 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 the what transpired in each kingdom, so to speak. And so we're going to look at at really kind of both. But after the death of Solomon, uh, obviously the throne goes to his son Rehoboam. And he continues to reign in Jerusalem. And you'll see on the map here that I've included uh, Jerusalem. Now we've got Judah down here in the south. And we have Jerusalem, which is incorporated into Judah, which is originally in the tribe of Benjamin. But Jim, Benjamin and Judah both go together now. And so uh, Jerusalem is now in Judah. And then we're going to see up here the kingdom of Samaria. Samaria is a, or the northern kingdom. You'll hear them called Samaria. You'll hear them called Israel. You'll hear them called the Northern Kingdom. And, um, but, but the, you know, Samaria is the state and we're going to see Shechem rise to the top here of, as kind of the, the capital. But, um, Rehoboam, he actually goes up North into the Northern Kingdom and is crowned King at Shechem. As of this moment, Jeroboam, as of this moment in our story, in the in the unfolding of history here that we're at right now, Jeroboam has not been yet crowned king, but has been told that he's going to be king. And so Rehoboam goes up north to Shechem. Now, why would he do that? The kingdom is divided. People have started to divide territories. Why would Rehoboam not go to Jerusalem to be crowned there? What seems like, the answer is pretty obvious, he's going to go up north and be crowned in Shechem as kind of like a, a peace sort of treaty, like kind of a way of gathering the country together. 
imagine if, um, let's say, uh, uh, a politician in America, you know how divided politics are right now, and I'm not meaning to necessarily jump, jump into the fray here, but imagine for just a second that a uh, president decided to, he, wa- he wanted to unite the country. And instead of doing his inaugural address from Washington, D.C., he decided to go to Lincoln, Nebraska. Now, you could imagine that 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 effort to have his inaugural address in the middle of what has been termed flyover country uh, is kind of a a sort of a kind of a come to the middle. It's like a, a kind of a peace sort of deal. Like we, we all want, we all, you know, I'm the, the president of everybody. And so Rehoboam, it seems like is trying to do maybe just that by going to Shechem and being anointed king there in Shechem. And so this, this place is obviously a holy place. It was, it was the place where Joshua had attempted to unite the tribes there. Uh, and so Shechem has this historical significance and has a, a, a for, for all of the nation of Israel. And so he goes there as kind of this sort of to unite the nations, as it were. And but there's already evidence that the nation has been divided in both opinion and loyalty, that, that people are picking up loyalty for Jeroboam already. And um, and so Rehoboam is trying to get get some of that back. Let's read this passage in First Kings 12, 1 to 15. Rehoboam went to Shechem. For all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned to returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, go away for three days and then come to me again. And so the people went away. Uh, The king Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel of the, that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, what do you advise that we answer this people who said to me, lighten the yoke that your father put, put, put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, thus you shall speak to this people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you, but you lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. <laughs> and now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined with you, you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king said, come to me this third day. And the king answered the people harshly and forsaking the counsel, the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father uh, made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. And so pause right there for just a second. Now you got to think to yourself, what on earth would possess a king? It seems like he goes to Shechem to be crowned king to like kind of unite the nation, so to speak. 
And all Israel gathers there with him in this sort of inaugural address. And even Jeroboam, who has been, it's been prophesied, Jeroboam, you're going to be king over the 10 northern tribes. And here Jeroboam is in the middle of all these people. And he's got an opportunity here to do something very small and lighten their load, lighten the taxation load. And he will have the whole nation, including Jeroboam, is willing to submit to him. Why doesn't he do that? That seems like such an easy thing. Great, we have peace. Now the whole kingdom is united again. Well, the author tells us in verse 15, so the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. So that's the reason, is because the Lord had prophesied that this was going to come about, and this was a turn of events that was dictated by the Lord. This was under the sovereign reign and control of the Lord, edict of the Lord, that this would happen in this way. And so you might say for Rehoboam, much like Pharaoh in the days of, of yore, he hardened Rehoboam's heart that he wouldn't um, approach the nation softly, but would harden uh, his heart against them and make their, their load harder and be very, uh, uh, I guess, boastful and prideful and arrogant. And what, what happened as a result, obviously the nation is going to be now really divided. Um, so he demanded um, the, the, obviously the demand was that they would take the heavy tribute that Solomon had laid on them and he would alleviate that. But uh, he didn't listen to him. He said he's going to make it, I'm going to make it harder, which you have to understand is not only pride and arrogance, but his stupidity, because now he's not going to get any tribute from them. They're going to be a separate kingdom altogether. But I suppose Rehoboam is in a place right now where he thinks maybe strength can be gained through power, you know, uh, you know, that, that I can just kind of force these people to comply and, and that sort of thing. And that's what's going to, what's going to cause it to happen. Um, but for whatever reason, uh, he decides to do that as the Lord hardens his heart and the, the people, the kingdoms are going to be divided. So at this point, the northern tribes basically declare their independence of Judah and they set about to declare Jeroboam as king over them. And so uh, Rehoboam obviously is not going to just go without a fight. And so he's going to try to get them back. And he's going to go to war with him. And so what does he do? He's going to send his chief, one of his chief administrators, Adoram, to plead with the Israel's leaders to not do this. And Israel uh, welcomes him and uh, with open arms and stones him to death right there in the middle of everybody. <laughs> so I'll tell you what we think of you and your heavy taxation. We'll take your, your leader and we'll stone him to death. And so... Uh, Rehoboam is bound and determined to put an end to the northern tribe's rebellion against him. And so he goes about doing this, but, but a prophet named Shemaiah reminded him that the Lord has already decreed that this should happen. And so he stopped the attack on the north. Let's read that in, uh, in verses 16 to 24. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, what portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. This is several times that they've said this. 
uh, including when David was alive. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was a taskmaster, over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. And so Israel had been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. That is the northern tribes. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. That includes Benjamin, obviously. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom of, uh, to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin and to the rest of the people, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up and fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man returned to his home for this Thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again according to the word of the Lord. All right. So now we have this the kingdom is firmly divided in two. And obviously, the people place Jeroboam, who will reign until 910 uh, BC, as king over them as their kind of newly formed monarchy. And Jeroboam is going to do something that actually makes a ton of sense uh, logically, right? Uh, Jeroboam is worried. Jeroboam is going to get worried. Now, think about this for just a second. The kingdom's divided. Where is that beautiful temple located? It's in the south. It's in Jerusalem. So, you have a nation of Jews who are used to every year going down to this temple. This temple has incredible significance to them. And they're going to go down every year and they're going to worship there. And so what is Jeroboam going to do about that? Because every year these people, his people, are going to be traveling to the south. Imagine for just a second that um, America was divided in half. And you know, you had uh, all the significant cities, all the beautiful uh, land, all the, the, you know, commerce and all the business and all of those kinds of things were, uh, were in the north. And we had a president over the south, let's say. Um, how worried would that president be that all of his people were going to be traveling to the north? All the commerce was going to be going there. All the everything was going to be going to the north. He'd probably be pretty worried. Well, Jeroboam's going to be in that same place. So first thing he does is he makes uh, Shechem the capital city, which obviously gives some legitimacy to the revolution, to the revolution that, uh, that he's got going here. And But then he starts to worry because obviously there's this divided kingdom and annually these people are going to be traveling to Jerusalem for this, these stated feasts that they have every single year they've got to have. They, um, and, and the worry, obviously, on his own heart is going to be that eventually they realize, man, all the, all the good stuff is in the South. All the good stuff is in 
is in Jerusalem. All the commerce, all the, you know, the, all, all our family members, all the, whatever, all the, all the people are in the South and they're having the good, the good time. And so uh, here's our newly formed kingdom. We come back and we're not quite, we don't have the, the reach. We don't have the name. We don't have any of this stuff that they normally have. And so uh, they're going to get disenchanted with the Northern kingdom and they're going to fall under the reign of Rehoboam again. And they're going to kill me. I mean, that that's the natural thought that pretty much anybody would have. And so what does he do as they, as he thinks about this potentially happening? Well, he does what any wicked king is going to do. He creates places of worship of his own. So he's going to create temples and he's going to create a northern kind of religion that sort of takes on a culture of its own and is sort of derived from a lot of what they found in Judaism, but he's going to update it for the northern kingdom and it's going to be their own. And you're going to see some of these little twists and perversions that he makes. The first thing that he does is he makes calves of gold that, and he places them at, sh- at shrines, at new shrines that he created at Dan and Bethel. And he institutes a priesthood, not made of the Levites, but of, of a different priesthood that are going to be um, stationed there and are going to serve at those uh, place in any, anywhere there is pagan worship, they're going to be the priest. Now, why would you set up one at, you see down here in the south, there's one Bethel, and then up here you have Dan. Why would you set them up in those places? Well, obviously you're going to take people that are further up north can go up north to Dan, and people that are further south can go to Bethel. And obviously Bethel is going to form that corner southern border. Hey, where are you going? Where are you going? Going to Jerusalem? No, let me show you. Come to Bethel. Um, worship the calves of gold there at Bethel. And with our priesthood, that's going to officiate all your, your services. But not only that, uh, he's going he's gonna to create um, feasts. And so he, uh, in the place of the Mosaic Feast of Booths, which happens in the seventh month, remember the Mosaic Feast of Booths, what was that? Do you remember? That was the, that was the feast or the festival that's that commemorated the uh the god saving the children of israel out of egypt and so what they would do in the seventh month is they would set up these booths in sort of the wilderness kind of wilderness or wherever and they would camp in these booths with their families for seven days i believe and so they would they would uh keep this festival of booths well if if you if you want people to return to Jerusalem and remind them of their the old religion, well, just keep the festival of booths because that that's a that is a specific commemoration of the old religion. And so instead, he institutes a feast not in the seventh month, but in the eighth month, and he also consecrates priests outside of the family of Aaron, which would have been you know in the in the Levite families so he creates uh he changes the festivals just slightly he gets rid of a lot of the memory and uh, of the old religion so to speak and sort of updates this sort of cultic religion now this is this can't be underscored enough that he understands something that's fundamentally true and has always been fundamentally true of uh, us as people, but us as Christians, even that if you want to get rid of faith, 
then refuse to teach your children where it came from. Uh, this is told to us in Deuteronomy 6, right? Um, Moses tells the people that you have to tell them. He starts off with the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But then in the rest of that chapter, he underscores how important it is for fathers and mothers to teach this to your children. Not just that we do these things, but the reason why we do these things. When you're walking by the road and when you're doing this and when you're doing that and your son asks, why do we do these things? Tell them we were slaves in Egypt. The Lord rescued us from Egypt. Jeroboam understands something very fundamental about Israel's faith and really Christian faith. It's based on discipleship. If you refuse to teach your kids, to disciple your kids, and you trust other people to do it, ultimately what you believe about Christ is going to be forgotten. And that was true even then. What they believe about God is going to be forgotten. And he's going to kind of weed it out of them by changing the celebrations and failing to remind them that they were slaves in Egypt and that God had rescued them. And so what does he do? But he makes calves of gold. And so you can see the Canaanite influences here with the calves of gold. You can see the Egyptian influences. So instead of get this like this kind of weird uh, 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 twist or this weird turn that he makes in their religion is instead of the festival of booths, them being rescued from Egypt, he puts them back in Egypt worshiping calves of gold. And the calf was, uh, or, or the, the, you know, the bulls, the, the cows basically made of gold is um, very prominent in the in ancient Near East. So, and it was celebrated in lots of different places, not least of which was Egypt, but also in Canaan. And it symbolized uh, Baal or the God we often call him Baal. Um, and he is, when he's depicted, he's depicted normally seated or standing on a bull because the bull is as an animal that signified strength and fertility. So Jeroboam is going to expose his people to idolatry by ironically doing a lot of what Aaron did as they come out of Egypt. So he's basically walking the people instead of instead of them now being out of Egypt and into the promised land, he's walking them back to Egypt and he's reversing the story. He may not realize that's what he's doing, but but in terms of the author of First Kings, that's what he wants us to see is the northern kingdom is having the story reversed for them. And they're walking back to the time where Aaron creates these um, these, you know, uh, calves of gold, if you remember that, all the way back in Air, uh, Exodus 32. So his golden calves recall Aaron's idolatry. And what's even further, the author of Kings really wants us to see this, that he's making Aaron's mistake. And he's, he's instituting this worship of these pagan gods, much like the gods in Egypt, much like the gods of the Canaanites. How do we know that? Because both Jeroboam and Aaron say the exact same thing about worshiping uh, these, these calves of gold. Behold your gods, O Israel, 
who brought you up from the land of Egypt. He's changing the story. That's what Aaron did. Aaron changed the story. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Those gods didn't bring him up out of the land of Egypt. Those gods were worshipped in Egypt. They didn't bring him up out of the land of Egypt. Both Aaron and Jeroboam know that. But then the other further irony to this is that Jeroboam also names two of his sons after Aaron's sons. So he becomes this sort of new Aaron who creates this new idolatry, creating this new sort of religion that walks Israel back into slavery. And that's that's sort of what we're, we're to see as we read this, this chapter is that the people are walking back into Egypt. Now, it's obviously sort of, uh, you may call it like metaphorical Egypt, but the new Egypt that they're walking back into is the Northern Kingdom. What does Egypt symbolize? Well, it's the same thing that Babylon symbolizes. Egypt, Babylon, they're the same thing. Egypt and Babylon are the beast. They are, they are the pagan kingdom. They are the kingdom of man. They're the kingdom of the world. They represent all of that. They represent the yoke of slavery. They represent pagan worship. They represent the lake of fire. They represent where, you know, uh, the, all the wicked are going to be tossed. They represent uh, satanic d- domain. Uh, they, they represent all of that. And so when you say they're walking back into Egypt, they're walking back into Babylon, they're going into slavery. And ba- that, that's, that's all kind of the same, that's part and parcel of that same image. They're, they're serving the pagan gods. And so they're kind of walking back through Israel's story. So now this is where the story gets really weird. And I skipped through some of the passages. I've recorded them there. You can go read them because uh, I wanted to get to this and I wanted to read this passage because it's very strange. Um, so let's let's read it. But basically, let me get to these blanks first. Jeroboam was, was reproved, is reproved by this man of God. So Jeroboam sets up this altar and this temple and he has this this um, this altar there, and you have this man of God who was from Judah, and uh, he was um, sent to Bethel, which is where one of the the temples is, the temple in the south. He's sent to Bethel, and the king is the king Jeroboam is celebrating at an altar there in Judah, and the altar becomes destroyed. And as the man prophesies, the altar is split in half. And the king, um, Jeroboam, is going to be paralyzed. And uh, a lot of crazy stuff is going to happen. So let's let's read that here in uh, 1 Kings 13, uh, 1 to 10. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard this saying uh, of the man of God, which He cried against the altar at Bethel. Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar saying, seize him. 
and his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up so he could not draw it back to himself. The altar was torn down, meaning it was, it was broken in half, and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king said to the man of God, entreat now the favor of the Lord your God, pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord and the king's hand was restored to him and became as it was before. And the king said to the man of God, come with me and refresh yourself and I will give you a reward. And the man of God said to the king, if you give me half your house, I will not go with you. And I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord saying, you shall not either neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. It gets more weird than that, but hold on for just a second. So we get this man of God that comes from Judah. He sees the, the king celebrating at the altar there. He uh, prophesies against it. The altar is broken in half. The king's hand becomes withered and he's sort of paralyzed, as it were. He can't move his arm. And, uh, and he says, you know, pray for him. And he, he prays for him and his hand is restored. And um, so this man of Judah confronts this sort of, right? He's sort of this Aaron-like figure in Jeroboam, who's taking the nation of Israel back into idolatry, he comes and he plays sort of this Moses figure in First Kings, uh, in this chapter, First Kings thirteen. And what does he do? He splits the altar in half, similar to the way Moses breaks these tablets of 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 the you know um, of stone right in front of the nation of Israel because right because they have made these calves of gold and uh, right there at the foot of Sinai. And so this Aaron-like figure is, is worshiping and these golden calves are. And uh, this sort of, I guess you'd say, kind of like a Moses-like figure comes out of nowhere and uh, breaks the altar in half. And um, But then this kind of weird scenario plays out with this man from Judah. Now we leave Jeroboam, who is at the altar and who now has a restored hand, we leave him and we follow this man of Judah and he falls for a deception where he himself disobeys the confirmed word that Yahweh gives to him by accepting food and water in the northern kingdom by a word of a false prophet. So let's look in 1 Kings 13, 11 through 32. Now an old prophet lived in Bethel, that's the northern kingdom, and his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told, uh, told to their father the words that he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, which way did he go? And his sons showed him the way that the man of God from Judah had gone. And he said to his sons, saddle a donkey for me. So they saddled a donkey for him and he mounted it. And he went up after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with you or go in with you. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, you shall not eat bread nor drink water there, nor return the way you, that you came. And he said to him, 
I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord saying, bring him back with you into your house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So he went back with him and he ate bread in his house and drank water. And as they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had been brought, who had brought him back. And he cried. So the false prophet now has the word. He cried to the man of God. Now that he has an actual word from God, he cried to the man of God who came from Judah. Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, eat no bread and drink no water. Your body shall not come to the tomb of your father's. And after he had eaten bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey for the prophet who had brought him back. Uh, and he went, he went away. And as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road and the donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road and the lion standing by the body. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. That's the, the false prophet, so to speak. And, and when the prophet who had brought him back from the way uh, heard, heard of it, he said, it is the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has given him to the lion, which he has torn him and killed him, according to the word that the Lord spoke to him. And his sons, and he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. And he went and found the body, his, his body thrown in the road and the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body nor torn the donkey. And the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back to the city to mourn and bury him. And he laid him, he laid the body in his own grave and they mourned over him saying, alas, my brother. And after he had buried him, he said to his sons, when I die, Bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying that he called out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against the houses of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. All right. That's crazy, right? <laughs> that's a, that's a, a strange and weird and, and interesting story. And we have to kind of ask, like, what in the world is going on in this story? And the answer is, I'm not entirely sure, <laughs> really, other than that this man who had the word of the Lord uh, failed in that he had a confirmed word from God. And instead of testing the prophet, the so-called prophet who came to tell him otherwise, instead of testing him, he just believed him. And instead of consulting the Lord, he just believed him. Now, some people will even go as far as to say, and I think there may be some merit to this, that you notice that in this story, whoops, you notice that in this story, the, um, the, the prophet is not called by name, which is a little bit strange. Normally, when the prophets are called out, they're Normally, they're called by name, and he is just called a man of God from Judah, which seems to mean that the emphasis that the author wants us to read is on the place where he's from, not his name. And so you end up getting this sort of parallel 
of Judah's story and Bethel's story, the place where the, the false gods are. In that, um, Judah begins to be kind of the respected kingdom and the, the authoritative kingdom, the only kingdom that actually is legitimate. We'll call them the legitimate kingdom. And they are worshiping at the altar of the Lord and they're worshiping the true and right, you know, God of the universe and proclaiming, um, you know, uh, uh, against the false gods of the northern kingdom, as this man of Judah does. But eventually, Judah will also fall into uh, false religion and will follow after other gods, and they too will be condemned and torn apart by the lion, so to speak, of Babylon that will come in and tear them apart. Is that what this story is about? I don't know. I'm not sure entirely, but I will say this. What gives it some credibility of that interpretation is that we're going to see that story play out in First and Second Kings. The author of First Kings 13 knows how this story is going to play out clearly. And uh, so it's possible that he includes this story and gives you these details in particular to help you see that you know, all of these, all of the significant idolatry that's going to lead to the death and destruction of both the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom are going to be because of idolatry started, initiated in chapters 12 and 13 of First Kings, where the destruction of the kingdom really is. So um, possibly that's what's going on here. I'm not sure, but um, it's an interesting story nonetheless. Um, but, but all of that is really serves to tell us where Jeroboam actually is. Jeroboam clearly should have taken the warning from the man from Judah, but he didn't. The man of God comes to Jeroboam as a word of warning and demonstrates the power of the word of Yahweh by splitting the altar, by withering his hand, and then obviously then restoring it. And all these were signs to Jeroboam that he had sinned. But here is the, I think the big thrust of all of this of 12 and 13. Jeroboam falls into sin and temptation. But what do what have we seen as we've read through the Old Testament, as we've come up to this point? But that God is patient, he is loving, he is kind, and here he has warned Jeroboam. And Jeroboam should have heeded these warnings, and he didn't. Look at 33 and 34, 1 Kings 13. After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places again from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and destroy it from the face of the earth. So clearly, the author of 1 Kings is doing this whole thing and telling you all of these details to help you see Jeroboam should have heard these words of warning, should have repented of his sin. And, and here's the kicker of it all. He builds altars in Bethel and Dan. He builds golden calves. He's planning on leading his people into sin. He should have heard these warnings as sin. And if he would have repented, what would have happened to the northern kingdom? They would have been sustained. But do you see what's going on in Jeroboam's heart? God has told him, I am going to give you 10 kingdoms, 10 tribes. 
You, these tribes I'm going to sustain. And what is Jeroboam worried about? That his people are going to leave, that they're going to go to the south, that they're going to like it there, and that they won't come back, or that they'll fall under the reign of Rehoboam. Wait, God has just told you that he's going to uphold your kingdom. Why are you worried about that? God has told you that this is what's going to happen. Why are you worried about that? But he is. And so what does he do? He solves it in the most human way he can possibly solve it. He solves it by creating uh, false gods, leading people into idolatry, thinking that that is what's going to keep them there, is if they fall into idolatry and they're dependent on him rather than on God. And so he becomes dependent on these false gods. He, be, he begins to reject God out of hand and ends up falling into the trap that he was trying to avoid to begin with. That's going to be his undoing, not, not letting them go down to Jerusalem and worship. That wouldn't have been his undoing. It's the falling, it's the, his own human solution that ended up falling him into the trap. And, you know, but at the same time, in spite of doing all that, God sends him a warning and what what we see out of that is if if he would have repented, God also would have given him back and restored restored the kingdom and and all of those things. And so uh, we we've seen time and time again that perfection is we're not capable of. David wasn't capable of. Why is it that David is called out the way he is in the Old Testament as a man of faith and as a man of God? And, it's not because he was perfect, quite the opposite. It was because he repented. And we see time and again in the Bible, God is patient, he's loving, he's kind. And if you're picturing a God who is, you know, um, hard and angry and um, and is always mad at you and, and um, you know, is frustrated by you, that, that's just not the God of the Bible. And even when people sin even just in utter rebellion he sends them a warning he cares for them he's wooing them back to repentance and um he does the same thing for us his, his children but 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 in, in our case christ has died he, we're no longer under the wrath of god and uh christ has died for us he's taken that wrath and so now we're god's children and so all of the things that god does for us are disciplinary and meant to bring us back to repentance questions Michael, what's um, I miss blank seven and eight. Uh, it's on the first page under Rehoboam was not able to permit. Um, let's see. Rehoboam was not able to permit this revolution without a fight. And in a last desperate move at reconciliation, Rehoboam sent his chief public works administrator, Adoram. Here, I'll, I'll uh, A-D-O-R-A-M. A-D-O-R-A-M. To plead with, and then the prophet Shemaiah, S-H-E-M-A-I-A-H. Adoram Shemaiah. Other questions? Yeah, I missed a few blanks too. Okay. Sorry. 
Which ones? So, uh, this, this is me being distracted, I guess. Um, <laughs> this is like the middle of the second page. Yeah. Uh, Jeroboam even names his blank after Aaron's son. His sons or what? His um, yeah. Oh, after Aaron's sons. Let's see. Okay. Let me share this real quick. All right. Tell me when I get there here. Um, right here it should be. Uh, no. Yeah. His two sons. Jeroboam even names his two sons after Aaron's sons. Is that it? Got two more. I got that one and I missed. Okay. Which one? Which one was the other one that you missed? One after that. Okay. Uh, so there was two sons on the previous one, and then Judah, Alter. Paralyzed. The next one. The next one after that? Aaron like Moses figure. Got it. Sorry. I flew through that, I guess, in a disjointed sort of fashion. No, no, no. You did fine. I just was distracted a little bit there. No, keeping up with you and trying to write all this stuff was hard. Yeah. I didn't. <laughs> Uh, sometimes I, I start I, when I select the blanks that I'm going to use, I, I'm, you know, part of it is, is built on like, well, I don't want you to know the answer. So I got to pick one that's kind of obscure that you wouldn't guess, you know? And then the other is like, but then when I get down to the end, I'm like, Oh, I gave them a lot of like Babylonian names. And so like, I sometimes have to go back and change it a little bit to kind of, you know, hopefully try to balance it out a little bit, but. I think at some point we need a pop quiz where you just say what's in the blanks and we have to like figure out what it was. <laughs> no! There we go. Yeah. Really spicing up your Zoom um, yeah. bubble study. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's awesome. All right. Any other, any other things? Well, okay, guys. Well, I'm going to let me get out of this real quick. I'm going to... Uh, I do have one question, sure. Michael. Are we having a... Did I say somewhere where we're having a Christmas service, a Christmas Eve service, or no? No, we're not going to. Um, that was a that was a hard one for me because I, I, I was like... I, I, honestly, I was actually considering doing it. Um, Blake, one, Blake was not going to be there for it. And so that was, that was part of the consideration. That was like 50% of it. And so I was thinking to myself, well, I can play guitar and I can sing off key and that'll be, you know, but then I thought, well, that's going to be on YouTube and that'll be recorded and immortalized. Uh, no. And <laughs> the other thought on that was, um, you know, it's kind of one more time that we, we get together in a room and you know, I feel like Sunday morning is, is necessary. And so we, you know, we do that, we gather together because we are an assembly and, and, you know, I, I feel like that's, you know, church is an assembled gathering. And, um, and I think that's kind of what we need to do, but honestly, with a lot of the other things, so people have asked about like Sunday school and, um, you know, like, um, uh, building blocks and, and those kinds of things and, and children's building and stuff like that. And right now I just feel like, you know, every church that I've seen that has really kind of put a lot of those people together in those extra gatherings, it's just, it's not gone really well. And, 
um, I get it. They're, they're, it's really tough, honestly, to kind of make some of these decisions. But the weight on me is like when I'm, if I decide to do that and I end up having to do three funerals because I did that, that I don't, that's going to, I'm not, I don't know how I'm going to be able to really sleep at night thinking about that. And so, um, so I'm trying to not really do that as much as possible. And let's, I know it's, we're kind of doing the minimum right now. So we don't really get to do the Christmas Eve service. And, you know, we do just the Sunday morning gathering and that's really it. And that stinks. And I hate that. And I hate zoom. I hate zoom. I, you know, (laughs) don't get me wrong. It's the, it's the best of what we've got, but I hate it. And I would much rather be, uh, doing this live, you know, I really would, but you know, it's just, it's what we've got right now, you know, and that, that's just, that's just it. And, and I, so I've kind of watched some other churches as they've done some of this and it's just never turned out great. And I just don't know that it's worth the risk right now, you know? So that's kind of how I feel about it. And, you know, I, I don't know. I think if, if people ended up coming up with COVID, COVID and, and ended up in ICU and, and, and God forbid dying of it and, you know, largely it's going to be the, me, the one that feels the remorse for making that decision, I think more than anything. So, you know, that's just, it is what it is. I, I know some people probably disagree with me and, and that's fine. I, I get it. We're all in different places. I completely support it, Michael. This is Larry. Oh, thanks, Larry. Man, I, I completely support that because a lot of people don't know it, but I am extremely high risk um, yeah. because of a illness that I had. And that's why people don't see me a lot uh, yeah. anymore. But my, yeah, and I have honestly, a we've got a we've very got, compromised system. Yeah, we've got we've got several in our in our congregation that are in in, a, in positions like that and se- several elderly. But then I also know that, you know, uh, I think this is probably waning maybe a little bit with the younger generation, just a little bit is that, you know, yeah. if a pastor says something with the younger generation, a lot of times they kind of go, mm, maybe, you know, and like kind of, it's sort of met with a little bit more skepticism, probably a healthy amount of skepticism. And sometimes with the older, you know, generation, if pastor says something, Hey, that's, you know, then that's, they kind of take that maybe with a little bit more weight. And so if you say, let's open up, I think we're good. Then I think, you you tend to get the ones that are going to, you know, do that. If there is a group that's going to go, yep, let's do it is probably going to be more in the older crowd, which is the worst, you know, group to actually do that, you know? And, um, and so with, with this particular virus, and so it ends up making it more, you know, kind of more susceptible. So that's the calculus behind the decision. And I know that that's not fun for everybody, but you can at least tell them that, it's I'm really it's trying to come from a good place. It's not, you know, trying to ruin everybody's fun or just squash church altogether. Believe me. Michael. Yeah. I got a card. I got a card from Vicky today. And, and I I just want to read this one sentence. I miss you, too. And of course, our turtle. I was at church Sunday and it was a blessing to be by my sweet husband, worshiping God together with our community of believers. I agree with you that we need to stay apart, but I want you to know you're not forgotten. We miss you too. We miss being live and with each other, but we need to be wise at this time. Thank you, Millie. Amen. Thank you for reading that. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Yeah. 
Well, Pastor, I'll give you an A on your calculus too. I agree. <laughs> Thanks, David. Uh, you know, I, I, I just, I hope everybody knows, you know, you know, sometimes I'm able to talk to a bunch of people. Sometimes I'm not, you know, but we absolutely miss every single person. Um, I, honestly, even I haven't met, I miss the people that are even there. Uh, you know, I know you feel like, you know, I'm sure some of you that are home and like kind of stuck at home are probably feeling like you're, you're missing out on so much. And, you know, I mean, we do gather a little bit, but it's not the same. I mean, it's really not. I mean, we're spread out and like a lot of people when, you know, church is over, like they kind of leave and I don't blame them at all for that. And then when I, I like stay up on the stage, practically half the time, talk to people and it, it's terrible honestly. <laughs> I mean, it just really is. And, and so anyway, that's, you know, I probably well, just so that you won't, won't get the big head. I'll tell you that Kennedy has not minded being able to lay around in bed with the dogs <laughs> and listen to Sunday service. But after he read, after he, I read this note to him by Miss Vicki, he says, that really makes me want to go to church. I want to see her. Oh, <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm going to tell you, I, I'm thinking about one, once this whole thing is over and it's really over, we just all come over to my backyard. We light a massive bonfire and we take our masks and just throw them in the bonfire. How about that? We'll- oh yeah, yeah. Let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> Man, then do s'mores, you know? Uh, so anyway, well, let me, let me pray for us and then we'll go. Heavenly father. Uh, thank you for these people. And I thank you for, um, just what you've done, uh, for us and what, how you've provided for us, uh, over this past year. And it's been really hard and it's been tough to go through. And I'm sure our suffering is, you know, pales by comparison to some other people's and, um, that's for sure. But we, uh, it, it's been difficult and it's been trying and challenging and it's stretched our faith a lot. And I think we've seen that we miss you know, the gathered assembly that we miss uh, coming to church without masks on. And we miss, you know, being able to shake hands and hug necks and, you know, all of those kinds of things. And um, we miss all of those things. And we've, we've come to see how important and how uh, wonderful the body really is and and how much we love that Um, and how much we miss each other. And I'm grateful for that. And I pray that that will continue and that that will grow. And um, we look forward to the day when this can be over and we pray that that would come quickly. And so we thank you for providing what you've provided for us medically. And we pray that it would have its effect, that there would be, you know, little to no side effects from a vaccine like this. And that it would be, that it would do what, you know, we hope it will do and it will settle a lot of this stuff for us and that, that it'll allow us to get back together. And so we pray that that would be the case. And um, we, uh, we look forward to the day when, when it will. And more than anything, we look forward to the day with uh, uninterrupted fellowship with Christ on the throne um, in front of us um, when we don't have to worry about sickness or disease or poor health or any of that any longer. Uh, we look forward to that day more than anything. And so we uh, pray that that day would come quickly. In the meantime, we thank you for sustaining us and for all that you've provided for us, all that you do in this world in us, all that you do through us, to us, and in spite of us. In Jesus' name, amen.
All right, y'all.